Hello there. I'm Salwa Khan. Welcome to Mothering Earth and to our program on urban horticulture and how it can contribute to sustainable communities. While urban horticulture has many parts, it has a central focus, which is using plants and green spaces to help people feel better and more connected to nature in an urban environment. Most of us live in urban or suburban areas surrounded by human-built structures, buildings, but we still need that primal connection to green living things like trees, bushes, flowers, and even wildlife that green spaces attract, like birds, butterflies, squirrels. My guest is Dr. Elise LeDuc, adjunct professor of agriculture at Texas State University. Can we start off by just having you tell us what urban horticulture is? It is a large and very complex uh, concept. It's a fairly newly coined word, just because we want to have a handle on everything. And it is the study of people and plants. It's people-plant relationships as they evolve and are affected by the urban environment. Functionally, horticulture is the applied science of plants, and the use of horticulture in an urban setting to make it much better to meet the needs of the people in the urban environment is what we're really looking, focusing on. We're talking about, obviously, urban settings, so these are cities, towns, even small towns. But I'd like to talk about how people uh, in these settings need green spaces. So it's important to them for emotional, for even personal reasons. Can we talk about some of that, that aspect of urban horticulture, why it's, why it's important? It has been proven through research that people respond positively to plants, both psychologically and physi- physiologically that there is a strong need which is traced back to the beginnings of civilization. Plants are needed. In many cases, people are totally subconscious about their needs to have plants, nature, around them. Green spaces in cities allow people to be exposed and to get out into nature much more easily It's harder to pack the family into a car and go to a state park or a national park. But if the green green belt or the green space is within practically walking distance of where they live, they're going to get out into it more and they're going to it's going to decrease stress and it's going to improve their emotional being. And it also will decrease health problems. These have all been substantiated through research. So when we say it, it helps their psycholo- helps people psychologically to connect with nature, in Stu- what ways does it do that? Studies have been done looking at like the uh, stress level, the extent of heart problems in cities that have very little green space, very few parks, very few um, street trees, and comparing those to cities in which people have been exposed to over time to a lot of green spaces, a lot of street trees, a lot more of nature in the in the city or urban situation, 
and there is a positive correlation with decrease in um, heart disease and stress in those types of situations. So do we know how, exactly how that works? I mean, is it just that being out in nature uh, or in a park or even just seeing trees around your, uh, you know, like walking down the street? There are probably, there are several different theories that have been proposed. And one of them really bases on the fact that humans evolved in nature they uh, were part of it, and they evolved, and there were certain settings in which they felt very comfortable uh, out in nature. One of them is the grassland savanna, which is where archaeologists, uh, anthropologists believe that we have, uh, evolved. And to a greater great extent, you will, if you ask someone where they grew up, you will find that that has affected the way they look at nature and the environment. I had one student who grew up in South Texas in the wide open plains, and she was doing a postdoctorate in Georgia. And she was totally claustrophobic the entire time because of all the trees. She could not see the horizon. But she is still very much bound to nature. And it provides security, comfort. Uh, I believe that for many people, there's also a religious aspect. Another woman that I met, her husband was ill, uh, was badly injured during the Vietnam War, and he was in a hospital in recovery in Japan for a year. She stayed over there with them, and she found that the only time she got emotional respite was when she went out into the Japanese garden associated with the hospital and could just sit and just let the pressures and the cares sort of slide off her back. There is a Japanese philosophy. If you go to a Japanese garden, you will find that every garden or most of the gardens will have a stepping stone path into the garden, and it will not be in a straight line. It will be in a zigzag. And the concept is that every time you pause, even for a fraction of a second, in making a turn, that some of your worries and cares slide off your back so that by the time you get into the garden, you are refreshed and you are able to immerse yourself in good and pleasing thoughts and feelings that will stay with you as you leave the garden. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Dr. Elise LeDuc, who is an adjunct professor in the Department of Agriculture at Texas State University. And we're talking about urban horticulture um, and I understand that uh, while uh, public parks, and you spoke just uh, just a minute ago about going to a park, um, have a great value that public gardens uh, might have even a greater value. Can you talk about what the difference is between a park and a, and a public garden and why one might be better than the other or have some perhaps benefits that the other doesn't have? Most of your public city parks are 
composed of wide open lawn spaces or grass spaces with trees over them. They were designed for activities and movement, whereas your public gardens are in, evolved with more plant design. There is a relationship between the trees and the shrubs and the herbaceous material. There are walkways, pathways, and they lend themselves to slowing down for smelling the roses, for relaxing and even sitting on a bench and contemplating the beauty, the structure around them, the, the plants. So, so a public garden is just more, uh, more of a plant space in that um, you have certain flowering, would you have more flowering plants, things like that? Uh, some of them are designed so that you have um, an educational aspect to the. Most of them have an educational aspect to them. They are showing people how they can beautify their own spaces uh, by what they see in the public gardens. They also may have a research component to, to uh, study plants. However, all of them really have a mission to inspire and to instill peace and contentment. And they have a take-home message that you too can create beauty around yourself. It's like seeing a three-dimensional painting, but it's rendered not in paint, but in plant material. And so you get a great inspiration because you realize that to a certain extent you too can do this. There are community gardens, we have school gardens, and we have the prison gardens, probably other even local gardens. In many cases those are growing food or food and flowers. Particularly children's school gardens are there to help with the developmental aspects of children. That a child who can get out and plant a seed in the ground and watch the plant grow and eventually harvest a piece of fruit or a vegetable that they can immediately eat uh, has a wonderful effect on their development. They have learned self-esteem, uh, self-confidence in watching that plant grow, of watering it and caring for it. And the social interaction between the different children in the garden setting helps them learn a little bit about teamwork and developing those social skills that are needed for life. A long time ago, you saw community victory gardens created during wartime situations where the need for produce, for food for the family was extremely important and you couldn't rely on it getting to you through a grocery store or another supplier and in order to survive you created your own garden space. To take it a step further, during World War One, the soldiers in the trenches in France and uh, areas were actually, because in many cases they were trapped down there over long periods of time, 
created their own little gardens there. It gave them a little bit more peace. It gave them something to do that was not stressing them out. Uh, and they were also providing additional food for them, for themselves and their, their comrades. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm speaking with Dr. Elise LeDuc of Texas State University about urban horticulture and the relationship between people and nature. When we return, we'll talk about gardening in adverse conditions, about nature deficit disorder, and about using nature as therapy right after this break. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Dr. Elise LeDuc, who's an adjunct professor in the Department of Agriculture at Texas State University. We're talking about uh, urban horticulture, and a few minutes ago you were talking about um, how soldiers in a war situation even found the time and space to create a garden. And there are other stories I know that you have about gardening in uh, very adverse conditions. Can you talk about some of those? Definitely, the in wartime situations, solace was gained by gardening. It f- flowed over here in Texas. One example, during World War II, the Japanese were interred in um, camps throughout the United States. They were removed mainly out of California, Oregon, and Washington. And one gentleman was interred in South Texas, And he found that the people here in Texas had treated him so well, and he had just only good things to say about Texas and its people, that he wanted to pay back in some small way after the war was over. So he created in Zilker Park in Austin, Texas, a beautiful Japanese garden, his way of thanking the people of Texas for their hospitality under adverse conditions. Right. And how about, uh, I mean, this kind of relates to um, prison gardens. What what does that do for people who are confined in uh, prisons? I think the first advent of using plants in prisons was the concept of farms where they were able to produce their own produce. Mm -hmm. It gave them something to do. It kept them busy. They reap the rewards of their dedication. There was an excellent example of this at Huntsville with a very large prison farm garden that not only, I think, fed the prisoners, but may have had produce beyond that for the community. Other iterations of it eventually happened. I believe that at Alcatraz, there was an incredible garden that was designed and created by the inmates that is still very much a showplace today as that is now a public uh, display. We touched briefly on uh, children and their uh, connection to nature through gardens. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, talk about what is has been described as a nature deficit in children. Um, can you talk about what that is and how gardens maybe can address that? In about 2007, Richard Love 
published a book on bringing uh, on last child in the woods. And he coined the term nature's de deficit. He was looking at the children of his childhood and how free they were, how much they how much time they spent out in nature playing, being creative using their imaginations. A time before too much television, a time before all of the electronics. And he looks at the current generation of children and he sees them tied to their iPads, to their iPhones, to their Xboxes, and not leaving the house. He feels that these children are truly missing out. They don't know what they're missing, but eventually there will become a time when the realization will come about. So he feels like any way we can provide an experience of children in nature, whether it just be a walk down the street to a city park, just walking around in the garden, that they will become a much better, more wholesome individual as an adult mm -hmm. if they have the nature experiences. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with Dr. Elise LeDuc, adjunct professor in the Department of Agriculture at Texas State University. And uh, we're talking about the many aspects of urban horticulture. Um, and one is uh, just in the design of green spaces within urban settings. Um, I know you, you've uh, talked previously about how you can include principles of sustainability and even uh, principles addressing climate change. Can you talk about how we might design, or rather design, um, <laughs> green spaces in urban settings to, to uh, address these issues of sustainability and, and improving our, our climate? One concept is hopefully to link green spaces, parks, gardens, with suburban subdivisions, creating green spaces that move through a subdivision. You will see a lot of housing developments today that will have jogging paths, that will have be preserving the, the landscape through a, a green belt that winds its way through a community, which allows for a linkage for not just people, but for all of the other organisms that are part of that um, ecosystem, that habitat. The larger the links, the larger the amount of space that is somewhat contiguous, the more we will have biodiversity. Biodiversity is important because redundancy is important. Uh, if you have only one link and you lose that link, mm. then you have truly lost something. So as long as we can have as much biodiversity as possible, we will be able to maintain good a good healthy ecosystem, which is important to sustaining life on this planet. Now, are there any design principles that we can use in urban horticulture that would help to mitigate the effects of climate change or that even can maybe help reverse those effects? Using plants that are locally native. There is 
the term native plant has very different connotations. A plant can be native to North America. That doesn't mean it's in every place in North America, nor will it grow in every place in North America. So you want to look for plants that are native to the area around where you are living. We have done a much better job today of being able to provide to the, to the industry plants that are truly native to an area. Those are plants that will beautify your home. They don't necessarily have to look wild and unruly, but they will help to maintain the ecosystem uh, throughout the area by incorporating home landscapes into the green spaces, into the outlying areas around an urban situation. At one point, we talked about uh, the use of land, and uh, one of the statements you made was that it's important to understand the land uh, before you even design anything on it. Um, can you talk about what you mean by that? When looking at the land, you want to work with it, with its contours, with the way water moves on it, so that you are not fighting against it, but working with it. You will have a much happier life if you do it this way. If too much rain comes down, there is nothing to stop it. The movement of water is terribly erosive. People can do this on their own property by creating what we call rain gardens. They can figure out the amount of water that might come out of their gutters and drains and plan gardens in the lowest part of the area where you have plants that can survive both in, with their feet in water for a little bit and as well as being dry. You provide an area where the water must slow down as it moves through and around the plants and is able to soak in. As it soaks in, then it, it, it is provides those plants with more water over a longer period of time, which means you do not have to irrigate. So you, you reduce erosion, you um, provide beauty, you provide the ability for the water to soak in, be retained, and thus be more productive for the plants and the landscape. And it saves you from having to water so much as well. Exactly. One of the things that uh, I found interesting that you mentioned earlier was the idea of horticulture or horticultural therapy. Um, can you talk about what that is? Horticultural therapy is a concept that originated in Topeka, Kansas with the Menninger Foundation. They felt and they saw that when their patients, their clients were, uh, were exposed to and were able to work with plants in many different aspects and that it helped their it helped them to either heal faster, and or in some cases, it just helped them have a much more contented and a more, at least more contented and more happy way of looking at the world, that they were more at peace with themselves. 
when I was at Duke, we had a young lady who had a biology degree, and she wanted to give back. She started a program in the children's hospitals where the children were extremely, uh, they were critically ill, and they were really hospital-bound, and they were taking their classes there in the hospital. So she worked with the hospital's children's schools, and she developed programs that could be done in sterile conditions, often using plant material, or if that couldn't be brought in, then a facsimile of it, to work with the children, play as well as learn about science. And in many cases, the doctor said that her work with the children was better than the pain medicine because it took them off. It gave them something to be enthusiastic about. She had one young patient who she brought some flowers in and taught him a little bit about how to arrange flowers. By the end of that day or just a few days later, he was asking for any donations of flowers possible because he was creating arrangements that he was giving back or selling throughout the hospital, and he was the happiest, smiliest young man you would ever want to imagine. So therapy helps. It helps in in emotional ways. It gives more contentment and it takes their mind off of it, but it also works as a, a way of creating new capabilities. That's all we have time for today. Send any comments or suggestions for future shows to me at gardentoad at vcyes.com. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth.